John, aren't you making kind of mountains out of molehills when it comes to mo some hills. of the molehills? Isn't it molehills? Is that how the phrase goes? You said molehills. Molehills. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like rocks. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Well, it's finally October, which means <laughs> that it is prime leaf peeping season. Nice. So hopefully you've gotten out to see some of the beautiful fall colors. We were laughing because we don't really call it leaf peeping. I don't know if that's an Eastern thing. I don't know. There's just like more because there's definitely more trees and yeah. more colors in the Eastern United States than there is out here in the I would, West. Yeah, I think that's probably true. So it's like not, I didn't learn that leaf peeping was what it was called until I went back East and people called it that. And I was like, oh, it's like how some people call it soda. Some people call it pop. Yeah, I guess so. Some people call it soda pop. Yeah. So leaf peeping. We've adopted it. And then people You've look adopted at, it. Yeah. People look at me funny out here when I say that though. <laughs> What's leaf peeping? <laughs> so anyway, prime leaf peeping season. And today we are talking about one of our favorite leaf peeping parks, Great Smoky Mountains. Woohoo! Oh, I'm so excited. Today's the fun fact episode for the Great Smoky Mountains, which means that I get to take Ash on a journey. Yes. Well, great. <laughs> I wish we were actually going. Actually, I'm pretty jealous. It's October, which is the busiest month of the year in the Smokies. Mm -hmm. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. So if you're not familiar, it is a really big national park. Yeah. And it has huge visitation numbers. And like most of those people go in October to see the, the fall colors. Oh, yeah. So, so many people go. And for good reason. Because yeah. not only do you see the cool fall colors, but you can see elk, which is really fun with their big with their big racks, which yeah. is way fun. Yeah. So if you're listening to this today, maybe you're on your way to the Smokies. Or maybe you're planning on going in the next few weeks. We're trying to get it out before like everybody starts going for the month of October. So, yeah. The idea yeah. is that hopefully this will give you some more information and some more ways to appreciate the park too. Because as, oh my gosh, this is such an interesting place. It's, it's so, so much fun. But let's just dive right in. Yeah. I'm excited. I don't know a lot about Great Smoky Mountains uh, besides just like what I've learned when I've gone to the park. Right. Um, and the places that we've seen and the things that we've done. So I am excited to dig a little deeper today. Yes. And we will be digging deep, my friends. Great. So deep. So, Ash, take me back in time a little bit to eons and eons ago when the continents were a little bit closer together. What would you call that when all the continents were together? Are you talking about Pangea? Pangea, the supercontinent. I think that's how you say it. Pangea is super cool because that's when all the continents, if you've ever watched Bill and I, the science guy, or had Professor Proton from 
Big Bang Theory or something like that, teach you about tectonic plates and things like that. Pangaea was when was the supercontinent when Africa, North America, South America, Asia, when all of the continents were together as one. That was Pangaea, the supercontinent. This is fun fact number one. Great Smoky Mountains National Park can trace its roots to a supercontinent that happened before Pangaea. I have never heard of one before Pangaea, so <laughs> I don't believe you. Yes. well, I I'm, was never taught that. Well, right. Well, it's so interesting because, yeah, exactly. In school, you never learn about anything before Pangaea. It's just Pangaea, the great supercontinent. That's where life obviously evolved. But turns out that's not true. That is false. And fan fact number one is that Great Smoky Mountains can trace its roots all the way back to a supercontinent called Rodinia. Okay. And, and so... <laughs> That's... No. <laughs> there can't be one before Pangaea. That's just really... That's messing with me. Isn't that crazy to yeah. think about? Okay. Let me... Let me read you a scripture to help you with this understanding <laughs> just a little bit okay. more. Now so, I'm sitting in Sunday school, apparently. Yes, this is Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. What has happened before will happen again. What has been done before will be done again. There is nothing new in the whole world. Okay. And so... So talking about... What did you call it? Rodinia? Rodinia. I'm Rodinia. sure that... Oh, I got it. I'm sure that the author of Ecclesiastes was not talking... <laughs> about the supercontinents of Pangaea and Rodinia. However, it kind of gets the point across that Pangaea was a supercontinent. It was not the only supercontinent. In fact, the continents have broken apart and come back together in different ways multiple times. Okay. It's kind of like, I don't know, Settlers of Catan or Catan, Catan, depending on how you play it. You set up the board. You play the game. I win. We please. When's the last time you won? <laughs> I'm so yeah. good at that every game. time. I'm no. always yeah. Mm -mm. We put the board together. You roll the dice. I get some sheep. I win. We break <laughs> it up. You don't want to play with me Everybody again. Everybody knows it's I a mistake. I talk you into playing. Everybody with me again. knows it's a mistake <laughs> to put yourself only on sheep. So that in and of itself, you can't no. Never go with the eight and the five. I always go with the nines and the fours, baby. Okay. Oh my gosh. So those are my numbers. But anyways. You don't, you don't win that game very often. I usually win. I think that's I think revisionist that's history. <laughs> and I think that um, anyhow. Okay. But I get what you're saying. The author of Ecclesiastes would be disappointed <laughs> in your view of what he's reading. When you set up the game, it's different every time just based on where the pieces come together, how you lay the pieces out. Exactly. So I understand. But it all fits in the same area. Generally I don't know if that's think, true. About I think I think so. I think there might be some some variation in some things like that. Because I don't know, especially as we've done some of these other fun facts episodes, there's continents or like mini continents that I've never even heard of that end up going underneath or over the top of other ones. And so right. I think there is some variation. It's not just that you mix them up a little bit, but Generally speaking, they come apart and they go back together and they come apart and they go back together. And, and it nothing happens. Is, nothing is new. Nothing is new. Okay. Exactly. And it, it happens over and over again. And Rodinia was the supercontinent before Pangaea. Which I'm assuming is what the Appalachian Mountains 
come from. That's where they get their roots. Yes, they can trace. And it's um, incredible to me that we can go all the way back to there. Now, this is where it really starts. Okay. And so a lot of the rocks in Great Smoky Mountains National Park, a lot of them are over a billion years old. Okay. And the reason that is, is because Rodinia was in existence a billion years ago, basically. For about a couple hundred million years, Rodinia was together. Well, about 750 million years ago, Rodinia began to break apart. And all of the subcontinents making up this giant supercontinent started pulling apart and going off in all different directions. And as these continents separated, it's not like breaking a saltine cracker where it's really clean and then it's just, they're gone. Basically what happens is you get all these continents pulling apart and then the land in between the tectonic plates starts to dip. You get a depression that turns into a gorge or a canyon and then it turns into a valley and then a lake and then an ocean or a shallow sea. Sure. That's happening in Iceland right now. Yeah. Just side note, because (laughs) the land is pulling apart and it's making just all these really interesting little depressions and valleys and stuff. Yes. So you can see it happening currently. It's happening currently in Iceland, if you want to go look it up. Which is so cool. Okay. So that's what happened in Rodinia. And that process was going on and going on. And the land that was on the continents that were separating, but not in between the middle, they were nice and tall. And then as the thing separated, suddenly massive amounts of erosion starts to happen there because suddenly the earth is falling on one side of it and wind and ice and water and everything starts to put tons of this newly broken up soil into rivers and streams and then it runs out into the ocean. And so over a couple hundred million years or so, as this ocean started to develop in between the two continents, miles, nine miles worth of sediment were dumped right there into that ocean and dumped into where the Great Smoky Mountains now currently sit. And the Great Smoky Mountains, that is like the main bulk of what the Smokies are made out of. The deposits, the nine miles of deposits. Exactly. And so the Great Smoky Mountains are basically made up of the erosion that's like pulling the mountains and pulling the land down out of these two continents that were once Rodinia. And now it's all getting settled to the bottom of the ocean, right where the Smokies now sit. Nine miles worth of stuff. Okay. So I'm assuming that came up out of the ocean at some point. Because so that's the next cool oh, part. Okay. Of the, that's the next say, cool part of the story. Obviously, the mountains aren't under the ocean anymore. Yes. Okay. So these continents, they started. They they were moving and moving, and and continents don't move very fast. You know, they a lot of times they move like one to two inches a year, but over two hundred and like just to kind of give you an idea, one inch every year over two hundred and fifty million years is four thousand miles which is basically the distance between Florida and Morocco. Oh, Morocco. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. And so basically from like this side of the Atlantic to the other side of the Atlantic took 250 million years to make. Okay. And so those continents, after Rodinia broke up, they're spreading out and they're spreading out and keep going further and further and further. And then all of a sudden, some giant mysterious force stopped those continents and then started bringing them back together. Really? Yes. Oh, that's pretty cool. It is really cool. Imagine trying to stop a continent. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that scene 
in Avengers Infinity War when Thor realizes that he needs a new weapon because he no longer has his hammer because it got broken in the previous movie. But he needs something to fight Thanos with. And so he goes to find this dwarf that can make him a new weapon with the remnants of a dying star. He has to open this thing up and restart the forge. And it's this massive and intense process. But he basically is getting scorched by this star. But he restarts this forge that starts going and going. And he eventually makes this new weapon, which is really cool and, and Groot pulls it together i don't know you do- actually i've not seen that movie so <laughs> but it, it's a really cool scene but it's just kind of like that's the kind of thing that would have to happen in order for these continents to get pulled back together and this is the process because then it starts a collision course between north america ancestral north america and africa and it's super cool this power starts pushing them together and then we have this awesome period of like anticipation <laughs> As North America and Africa start racing towards each other, two unstoppable forces set on a collision course. They're both playing a dangerous game of chicken, kind of like the original Footloose movie with Kevin Bacon when they're racing the tractors. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it ends, I need a hero. (laughs) And these, anyways, the two tractors are racing towards each other. And, but that's what these continents are doing. They're racing towards each other. But this time, the ending is a little bit different. The continents don't just crash into each other or bounce off of each other. They literally smash into one another with the power of two giant continents. And I was just thinking about it. Like, even if we put like two monster trucks next to each other at one inch per year speed, if they hit each other, you wouldn't even know what happened because their momentum would just stop and then they'd go back to a relaxed position. But these two continents do not do anything like that. Instead of stopping, the momentum of these two continents keep pushing each other and pushing each other for literally 30 million years. They smash into each other. Okay. And it's this amazing force of Africa and North America, like just layer upon layer of earth running up and over each other or breaking or bending and everything like that heat and immense pressure. It's this immense force that happened over such a long period of time that brought all of that sediment from the breakup of Rodinia. It brought it from the bottom of the ocean up, up, up to sea level, and then even higher. And some believe that it brought this land up even taller than the Rocky Mountains up over 14,000 feet. So that over 30 million years, this process of these two continents smashing into each other created the entire Appalachian chain of mountains and especially the Great Smoky Mountains. That's really cool. Honestly, it's probably one of the best origin stories of any (laughs) mountain in North America. I think they're just, it's so cool that that is literally the story of this whole chain of mountains, that that came from these two continental powers crashing into each other together yeah cool oh it's it's insane it's such a cool thing and honestly the fact that they were probably over fourteen thousand feet or more just blows me away and that speaks to the age of the appalachian mountains because they've had a lot of time to erode yes they really have so Um. (laughs) yeah i mean obviously they would have a pretty old history if they've been around that long 
right. anyway. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And so the collision started about 270 million years ago. And the collision ended about 240 million years ago. And so that was the time of their mountain building. And so they've had 240 million years to kind of erode and, and get to their current state as they are now. So the collision started like 270 million years ago. And since then, 240 million years ago is when they started to pull apart. And so it's had quite a long time to erode. And the breakup between North America and Africa was actually pretty intense. Kind of reminds me of a Chris Stapleton breakup song, you know, where <laughs> where she put sugar in his Johnny and he can't mow his lawn anymore and had a bonfire with his guitar and everything like that. Because, <laughs> That's a great song. Yes, it is nice. such a good song. But as Africa pulled away from North America. This is the second time. Yeah, this is Pangea breaking yeah, up. Okay, so they collided when Pangea started to be Pangea. Correct. And then now they're breaking apart again. Correct. And okay. so as Pangea broke up, you've got the same process that happened with Rodinia. You have all of this. It's not the saltine cracker, a depression and then a gorge and then a valley and then an ocean. Literally, this is why the Atlantic Ocean exists. It's from this motion of the two continents pulling apart. And so as they pulled apart, the mountains are getting pulled down by all these erosional forces. And so you've got water, wind, and ice sucking down the mountains, pulling the sediments and dropping them in the Atlantic Ocean. And luckily, we got Great Smoky Mountains in the breakup because mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing. It's yeah. pretty sweet. But they were substantially taller when they were first created. And so it's a really interesting story. So that brings us to fun fact number two. And so despite all of those erosional forces and everything like that, Fun fact number two is the highest point in the Great Smoky Mountains is also the highest point in Tennessee, and it's the third highest mountain peak east of the Mississippi. Klingman's Dome. Klingman's Dome. It's 6,643 feet. It's really cool. The thing is, is that's still like a respectable elevation. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's like they're like tiny little mountains or right. anything. But I mean, you think about if, if we think that they are around 14,000 feet 250 million years ago or whatever. That's a lot of time to erode. So we've lost half. Exactly. <laughs> half of what they were to erosion over 250 million years. Right. So let's 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 tackle the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is John, aren't you making kind of mountains out of molehills when it comes to mo some hills. of the molehills. Isn't it molehills? Is that how the phrase goes? You said molehills. Molehills. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, the I think a lot of people, especially here out in the West, are like, the mountains out here are so much bigger than the ones in the East, right? Well, like, yeah, and they are, but they're also way younger. So let's compare them a little bit. Okay. Okay. Because this is why I think the the Appalachian Mountains, but also the great, specifically the Great Smoky Mountains are so cool, okay? Because the tallest point in the Great Smokies is like 6,600 feet above sea level. The valleys with the towns underneath them, like Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge and those areas are close to 1,000 feet above sea level. Okay. So that's like 5,500 feet. When you compare that to, say, the Rockies, You've got the, the highest peak in the Rockies is Mount Elbert at 14,400 feet. The valley below that. That's in Colorado. That's in Colorado. Correct. 
where you've got Leadville and Granite. Those are in the valley beneath Mount Elbert. Those are at about 9,000 to 10,000 feet. Which so that's is like crazy. So those are yeah. the land is so high. The land is so high. But the mountain versus the valley is about the same. Yeah. As the Great Smokies are to their valleys. Yeah. When you compare that to like the Sierras or the Cascades, those mountains are significantly taller from mountain peak to valley. But the Great Smoky Mountains, I mean, there's an amazing amount of hiking that you have to do to get from bottom to top. Well, and you know what? That surprised me the first time we went to the Smokies as I was like, we're like out there hiking and I was like, gosh, there's no like really easy trails here. Right. If you stick to the valley, you'll find some decently flat (laughs) and easier trails. But like if you're hiking to waterfalls, if you're trying to get up into the mountains at all, if you're doing the Appalachian Trail, anything like you are up and down and up and down and up and down, I would say more (laughs) So then I was for sure expecting. Right. Got our kids on these trails and I'm like, this is so much harder than I thought it would be. Because when you look at the mountain, you don't expect to be going up and over and, and down. And I don't know. Everything looks more gradual in the Smokies. Well, yeah, I think a lot of that is the fact that it's called covered in soft foliage. Yeah, it's very deceiving. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I felt very deceived uh, yes. when we got over there. And when we're doing some hiking and like even now, you know, it's like when we go to the Smokies, we tell our kids, this isn't going to be an easy trail. It's going to be really cool. You gain a lot of elevation, like even the Grotto Falls, mm-hmm. which is one of the easier trails in the park right. and one that a lot of people like to do with their family and with kids. That's still like almost 600 feet of elevation, which that's a moderate trail. It's not an easy trail. Right. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that actually... It's probably the biggest thing that surprised me about this hiking in the Smokies. It was like, oh, there's like no easy trails here. <laughs> it's true. You have to work a lot in the Smokies. It's awesome. Which is why a lot of the original homesteaders and settlers and explorers were pretty hardy folk. But to your point earlier that you made, these mountains are so much older than other mountains too. And so they've had way more time to erode. The Smokies are like 270 million years old. The Rockies are less than 80. Yeah. The Sierras are less than 50. The Tetons are less than 10. And most of the Cascades are less than a few million years old. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Yeah. That's so so crazy. So literally compared to something like Mount Rainier or something like that, the Smokies are 270 times older than those mountains. (laughs) And so in a lot of ways, when they're that old, what's so cool about it is the erosion has had enough time to remove the fluff of these mountains. And so what we're hiking on, what we're camping on, what we're experiencing when we go to the Smokies, you are literally experiencing the heart of those mountains. Mm -hmm. You are experiencing the core of the strength that gave them their power for so long. Those mountains that you get to hike on, it's so cool. And bringing us into Fun facts number three and four. I honestly, I think what's so cool about experiencing the core of these mountains is you get to see their true self. And in in a lot of ways, they're like life-giving mountains. And we talked about that in the exploring episode, how much more life you feel like they breathe. Yes. And <laughs> honestly, I didn't realize how much life there was in this park until I kind of was trying to find some facts to back this up a little bit. Uh And it's incredible how much life, biodiversity, 
is actually here in these parks. But before we can really dive into that, we have to cover something else. So we have to fast forward in time about 267 million years from where these mountains started. So they've had the majority of their lifespan to erode. So they've gotten significantly shorter from when they were created. And so this is only 3 million years ago. But 3 million years ago is when the ice ages on the planet really started to take hold. And during these ice ages, there was a series of different cooling and warming periods that the Earth went through. But one of the most important aspects of these ice ages is the fact that there were massive sheets of ice covering a huge portion of the planet. And so from the North Pole going south, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles, like the ice sheet coming from the North Pole extended all the way down into parts of Kentucky and West Virginia. Mm. And so like these ice sheets, and some of them were one to two miles thick. Yeah. And that's only 200 miles of where the Smokies are. And life can't exist in those types of situations. It is literally the life is being crushed out of the environment. I mean, you probably know this from working in Glacier Bay. Or everything moves. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The great migration, right? Yeah, you've got to you got to get out of the way of the ice <laughs> yes. or be crushed. Exactly. You, there's not a whole lot of options. No. no. <laughs> so, it's, it's pretty hard to live under 2 miles of ice. Exactly. So. <laughs> I mean like I mean maybe microbial life could live there, but plants and animals and people obviously would not be able to. And I'm not exactly sure how quickly like things changed in these types of situations, but I kind of picture of it kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia with the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where you've got the white witch who claims to be the queen of Narnia, but she's really not. And she casts this cruel spell over the land. And so then suddenly the winters become extra long and extra cold and summer never comes. And all the creatures are just kind of hoping for the sun to break through the clouds and, and melt some things, but it never actually works. Then everything slowly gets covered in ice. And maybe even a few generations pass of of plants and animals trying to claw some kind of living out of where they're at. But then Lucy Pevensey shows up with her brothers and sister. And finally, the beaver declares, Aslan's on the move, you know? (laughs) And then a bunch of stuff happens with Edmund and he gets rescued and redeemed. But then they all meet at the stone table. And then as they make their way there towards the stone table, things start to warm up. Trees start to grow buds. Flowers start to bloom. Snow starts to melt all around them, and the smell of spring fills the air. And then they see it. Aslan's camp. They see the creatures, all kinds of creatures, satyrs, centaurs, fawns, eagles, leopards, griffins. Everything is there at the stone table, and they prepare to make their last stand. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of the the facts that scientists have found is that The Smoky Mountains, in a lot of ways, were where a lot of life fled from these glaciers and these ice sheets to basically make their last stand. Because they didn't know if the ice was going to keep progressing or not. The Great Smoky Mountains, I'm. this is where I'm going to make one of my outrageous claims. I'm pretty sure... That the great smoke. Okay, okay. Well, hold on, hold on. Let me (laughs) let me buckle up for this. I think that the stone table is somewhere at the Great Smoky Mountains. That's my outrageous claim. All right. I mean, listen. (laughs) 
you've said some things on this podcast that it's like, I don't know if I can support that. But at the same time, like, I like that you can make a connection in that way. I can see it. I see it. It makes some sense. Yes. So I'm with you. you. I appreciate your support. Yes. Hashtag stone table, great smokies, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so, I don't know. I think there's a lot of evidence that shows a lot of the creatures that were only at home in northern climates, they moved further south and they made a home in the Great Smoky Mountains. I actually love that. I mean, that there are a lot of places when you look at the ice ages and stuff. I mean, they were fleeing from the approaching ice yeah. <laughs> in a lot of cases. And so that totally makes sense. If the ice didn't quite make it down to the Great Smoky Mountains, then yeah, I mean, that it would be a natural, a natural place for things to gather. Yeah. Well, not only did they like go there and it served as a refuge for them, but a lot of them are still there today. Yeah. And so you have, I mean, some of these creatures are no longer there because they were extirpated by hunting or, and things like that. But at one point at the Great Smoky Mountains, you had things like the, the northern flying squirrel that was only in basically, if you look at their range, it's pretty much Canada and some of the very strip of America at the very top of the country. And you also had things like gray wolves, red wolves, you had rock voles and certain species of owls and other types of birds. But at one point, there was also buffalo, mountain lions, fishers and river otters that lived here. A lot of them had to move here Mm -hmm. because their environment was being crushed by miles of ice. And so that's why I think that this place was such a neat refuge for life because not only did it bring them in all of these creatures, but then so many of them like it so much that they've stayed. And so fun fact number three is that Great Smoky Mountains National Park is the most biodiverse national park in the park system. Oh, really? Yes. Ooh, I I love that. Yes. Over- Man, I got to go to the Smokies. <laughs> I got to go back. I didn't know that. Yeah. And how many times have we been and I didn't know that? Oh so my gosh, yeah. You're welcome, all of our friends out there, <laughs> that you don't have to like keep going back because you learn new things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Over 19,000 species have been documented within the park and they believe that there might be between 60 and 80,000 more. And so there is so much biodiversity in this national park. It was actually designated as a United Nations World Heritage Site and as an international biosphere reserve. For and reals? So, yes. It's the so cool. The national park itself? The national park itself. And starting in 1998, the park actually works with this nonprofit called Discover Life in America. Uh And every year they have this constant inventory where they're always looking for new creatures. And since they started it in 1998, they've discovered 10,000 species that they didn't even know were in the park and 1,000 species that nobody even knew existed. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah, exactly. It's so cool. It's such a neat place. Literally the best refuge of life that you could imagine. And I have three interesting facts just to throw out there to even support this even more, to make it just so like, oh my gosh, I've got to get there. It's such a cool place. Number one, Great Smokies 
has also been called the salamander capital of the world. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's not like super enticing to me, but (laughs) I can see why there's a lot of water and and stuff. Our kids would love (laughs) to be in the salamander capital of the world. Yes, it's so cool. Well, I remember... (laughs) When we were there, I actually got a picture of one. I thought it was so cool. At Laurel Falls, there's actually 30 different species of salamanders that live within the park. And 24 of those are lungless salamanders, where they don't even have lungs and they breathe and do all of the oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange through their skin. Okay. So that's super cool. All right. One of the salamanders can grow up to 30 inches long. Yeah, that's like... My worst nightmare. <laughs> I, I don't do I don't do creepy crawly. It's got the, I don't do creatures. Yeah. It's got the funniest name though. So the actual name is the Hellbender Salamander. Oh, that's pretty good. But it's also affectionately known as the Snot Otter. Oh, gross! <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. <sighs> All right. Yeah. Interesting fact number two: Great Smoky Mountains National Park is world renowned for its wildflowers. There are over 1,500 kinds of flowering plants found within the park. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. That the the wildflowers are a big deal. It's a huge deal to the point where some people actually refer to it as like Wildflower National Park instead of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's pretty crazy. And I love me a good place with wildflowers. <laughs> that one I'm excited about. The snot salamander, whatever, is not very exciting to me. But. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Number three. So I talked a little bit about the flying squirrel for a second. That's actually called the Carolina Northern Flying Squirrel. And it can trace its route back to these ice ages where they had to flee south away from the glaciers and everything. And they made their home. They were only comfortable on like the highest elevations of all the mountain peaks in the Appalachian Mountains, but especially here in Great Smokies. And so they've actually been here and stayed and they've made their home here for so long that they are now actually their own subspecies of the Northern Flying Squirrel. They're different. They've been here for so long. Nice. And so they're just, they're really cool. And the last one that I'll talk about is kind of the most famous resident of the Great Smoky Mountains, the Black Bear which there are a lot of. There are estimated to be between 1,500 and 1,900 black bears in the Smokies, which averages out to be about two bears per square mile. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll see five of them while you're driving through Cates Cove. Right, exactly. There's so many bears here. The biodiversity here is so cool. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to move on to fun fact number four. So for fun fact number three, we kind of focused on the creatures for the biodiversity. Now we're going to focus on the forests of Mm -hmm. Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now, the forests are easily the largest plant communities in terms of like individual plant size. But the forests here are incredible. So fun fact number four, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is home to about 100 species of native trees, which is more than any other national park. And almost 95% of the park is covered in forest. And of that, one quarter of it is old growth forest. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Old growth forests are the best. I know. I love it. If those trees could talk. That's all I think about when I'm walking through like a a forest that's just full of 
massive old trees. Mm-hmm. It's like, my gosh, like, can you even think about that this tree was here during like all these cool moments in history and, and stuff like, oh, if they could just talk, it'd be so cool. <laughs> exactly. They've oh. seen so much. Like they've been alive for so much history. I know. It's, it's cool. I love trees. When I touch the bark of a tree, I don't know. I just like to look at it and just be like, oh my gosh, you're so cool. John will touch the trees when we're in the forest. He'll like touch the trees and he'll like talk to them. I'll be like, good job, buddy. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. Like, He's just walking through the forest, like touching trees. And that's actually one of my favorite things about you. Oh. When, when we first met and we would go hiking and stuff like while we were dating and John would just like, when he hikes, he like touches things in appreciation. Like, and I remember I asked you about it once because I was like, why are you like touching all the trees? So we were like, I just like to give my appreciation that they're here. (laughs) I just thought that was so cool. I was like, you're a weirdo, but like, you're my weirdo. So I am your weirdo. (laughs) I like to think of myself as a shepherd of the forest. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Since the Ents are not around, I have to do their job for them. Yeah. Oh, the trees in that park are so cool. And I have to say, and we've talked about this, like coming from somewhere that doesn't have that many trees, mm-hmm. it can feel a little bit claustrophobic for me. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like these mountains are covered in trees. Yeah. Like, it's so impressive. They're everywhere and they're so thick and they're so big and so beautiful. And lots of different types, like you said. And, yes. And that's why the leaf peeping there is so dang good. Yeah. Because there are so many different kinds of trees and they all turn just varying shades. And so you have just like this plethora of color mm-hmm. from all these different types of trees that are here in this yeah. park. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So I mentioned how many different species there are, but also within that, in terms of like kind of still thinking of it as like a refuge for life, as these communities of not only creatures, but also plants somewhat, they kind of fled from these ice sheets and everything these different kind of forest communities found a home on these mountains. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of think of it, I don't know how to say this, but it's kind of like Great Smoky Mountains is kind of like the New York in terms of the forests. It's kind of like- It's like the gathering place, melting pot. Yeah. (laughs) Where everything could come and everyone could find a place because there's so many different species of tree and so many different landscapes and so many different- elevation changes. Exactly. And yeah. Stuff. And so everybody could come here and carve out their space. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of like, give me your tired, your poor, all of the trees that need saving from crushing ice, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so here in Great Smoky Mountains, there's actually eight major forest types covering all of the Smokies. And it's kind of like when you walk through New York, sometimes if you don't pay attention and you're just kind of looking And generically looking, you can see just like, okay, apartment building, apartment building, brownstone, brownstone as you're walking through New York City. But if you pay attention, you'll notice, oh my goodness, I literally just walked through how many communities? I just walked through Little Italy, Little Mexico, Koreatown, Little Afghanistan. I just walked through all of these distinct communities. But if you're walking through Great Smoky Mountains National Park, And you just see tree, tree, tree. But if you pay attention just a little bit more to some of the details, you'll notice, oh my goodness, I'm in a totally different forest than I was just a minute ago. And all of these different tree and forest communities, 
they all need different things to survive, whether it's a certain amount of moisture, a certain soil type, or elevation and different things like that. These forests, they found a home on these mountains. Mm -hmm. And they've been there for so long that you can actually predict where each of these forest types are going to be based on the characteristic of the land where it's at. Mm. And so it's really kind of interesting that way. Not only did the Great Smoky Mountains serve as a refuge for creatures, but you'll find all kinds of plant life here that you would not expect. And if you pay attention just a little bit more to kind of what you're looking at, you'll see there are distinct and special differences in every part of the park that you visit. That's awesome. So I know I kind of get carried away a little bit. When I was comparing the Great Smokies to Narnia and things like that, and the stone table kind of acting as like a refuge for all of these creatures and the plants. But now that the ice ages are gone and the glaciers have receded, the life is kind of able to go back north again. It's no longer like the Great Smokies are a refuge. It's almost as if that's where the life is coming from. And Everything's so, kind of coming outward from the epicenter. Exactly. And so it's no longer like Narnia. It's more like How to Train Your Dragon 3. Nice. <laughs> and so if you can remember that scene where Stoic is holding Hiccup. I think it's like a flashback moment where Hiccup is remembering his dad telling him about the hidden world. Let's see if I can do my best Gerard Butler impersonation. Legends tell of ships that sailed too close to it, only to drop off the edge of the world. I sound like Gr You do. I sound like, you sound like, I sound like Despicable Me. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I think I'll maybe I'll abandon, <laughs> abandon the Scottish accent. Never to be seen again. But those sailors who turned back told tales of a great waterfall and dragons guarding the entrance to a hidden world. Not just a nest hiccup, but a land from which all dragons come. And that's the Smokies. The land from which all dragons come. <laughs> and uh, you'll find waterfalls. You'll find cool creatures, big and small, gooey creatures, creatures with teeth and experience every color under the rainbow. And if you treat your visit like an adventure, honestly, don't be surprised if you have one. Mm -hmm. It's such a cool place to visit. Yeah. And we covered a fair amount of ground here. We've talked about the mountains and where they came from and building up and then the erosional forces that took them down. But then we talked about how the Smokies are just life-giving. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. I love the Smokies. The most biodiverse place in the national park system. That is so cool. I'm not surprised, but I did not know that. Yeah. So I'm going to look more closely. We're going to the Smokies for sure in 2024. We've had to cancel a few trips because of John's stupid back surgeries. <laughs> <laughs> but that is probably my most anticipated park of 2024 that we get to go visit. I am so excited to get back out there. I so. know. And now I'll great. just love it even more. But we have to get to fun fact number five, which is always the human history. Yes. Because, I mean, if we had a day to talk about this, we could delve into all of it. But we don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the human history in the Smokies is insane. Like, oh, there it's... is so much history in this area. So when we talk about like a life-giving area, 
not only for plants and animals, but for humans as well. I mean, people have lived in this area for a very long time. It has such a rich human history. And it's a history when you drive through the Smokies and when you're out sightseeing and hiking and stuff, a huge part of what you're seeing is the human history oh, yeah. that makes it so cool. Oh, and if you know anything about the area, if you're familiar with the history, you're going to feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they left so much out. But there's no way we <laughs> could cover no it all. There's no way to cover it. Oh my gosh. There's Not absolute- today. Not no. unless we wanted to do a six-part series. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we're not Ken Burns, so. No. John, the very convoluted version of human history in Great Smokies. Okay. Fun fact number five. So we're going to start talking about the native peoples because they've been here for so long. And the current tribe that we know them by is, is the Cherokee Indians. And they've been here for thousands and thousands of years. But honestly, I can't think of a tribe that when I look back at their history and kind of see what ended up happening to them, I can't think of a tribe that I'm like more frustrated about because of how things went down. Because the Cherokee were probably the tribe that were, I don't know of another way to say it, but they kind of assimilated the most Mm -hmm. into American culture and they adopted a lot of things. They were the tribe that probably, I think that a lot of people, when they kind of look back and say, oh, there was just too many cultural differences, it was bound to happen. Mm-hmm. I think the Cherokee were the one tribe that I'm just like, no, I don't that think wasn't so. the problem. <laughs> the only reason that that happened to them, the only reason I can give is greed. Yeah. It's terrible what happened to the Cherokee. The Cherokee people have an amazing history. They were there for thousands of years. They lived in nice small communities. A lot of them were matriarchal, which is an interesting change from a lot of the other tribes that I think we've done some histories on. I fully support. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They already were farmers in a lot of ways. And so when Europeans came across, they adopted tools really quickly. Uh And they actually had learned and adopted their farming system. And they got really profitable about it. They also had a written language that they kind of had documented and could write it down. And they even adopted their own constitution with principles of democracy and their own set of laws. And so it is kind of incredible. And they had a lot of their neighbors really enjoyed living among the Cherokee Indians. And so that's why I say like the Indian Removal Act, I think is what it was called, that President Andrew Jackson signed into law, it cannot, there are no excuses. Mm-hmm. It is just one of those things that I'm they looking back. Yeah, they weren't. The Cherokee were not fighting. <laughs> well, how do you say it? The Cherokee were not fighting with the people coming through and taking over their land. No, exactly. I think it was simply that yeah. somebody saw something that somebody that else had yeah. and there was a way that they could take it. And so they did. Yeah. And so that's why we end up with the Trail of Tears where many of the Cherokee Indians were forced to leave their homes, held in stockades, and then had forced to move all the way to Oklahoma. And almost 14,000 Cherokees moved all the way out to Oklahoma, and 4,000 of them died from cold, hunger, and disease during the six-month journey that it took for them to get there. I mean, it's just completely awful. But one thing that I think that we could be grateful for is that some of the Cherokees were allowed to stay. And so that's why the name 
Cherokee on the North Carolina side, that's them. Yeah. And they're the Eastern band of the Cherokee Indians. Yeah. And so what actually happened was there was a, a gentleman, his name was William Thomas. He was a successful businessman that grew up among the Cherokees. And for more than 30 years, he was like an attorney and an advisor. And he actually was kind of the main reason that a lot of them were allowed to stay. They were granted an exception basically to the rule. Mm -hmm. And so those Cherokee were able to stay. And now today there are about 11,000 members of the Eastern tribe, most of whom live in the Cherokee Indian reservation. And so thank heavens they were able to stay on their ancestral land. Right. And so, I mean, if we can, that's a whole nother thing to unpack, right? Is, is right. how a lot of Native Americans were forced out of their own land. So yes, they, some of them got to stay. That's great. But I mean, they really shouldn't have been pushed in the first place. Exactly. But yeah, when you go to the North Carolina side, that town right outside of the Great Smoky Mountains, right outside of the National Park is called Cherokee. And that's that tribe. And so you can actually like they have traditional things that you can do and you can take part in with them. You can a lot of the shops and stuff are Native American souvenirs and things that they make handmade there yep. in the area and stuff. And so it is like it's it's a totally different feeling than the Tennessee side of the park. Right. You get a little bit of cultural experience when you go down to that North Carolina side and and spend some time just outside of the park there. Exactly. This kind of brings up one of the park's most famous inhabitants, or I don't even know if he actually ever lived there. You see his name everywhere, especially on the Gatlinburg side. Okay. And that is Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier, man. He was born in Tennessee and he was born in 1786 and he was an amazing hunter. And there's lots and lots of legends regarding Davy Crockett. And one of them actually states that he killed a bear when he was like three years old. Really? Yeah, oh, exactly. That makes sense. <laughs> There's so many legends about him. <laughs> um, but he actually opposed President Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act that was responsible for removing the Cherokee from the area. And he was the only vote from Tennessee that was against it. And it actually is probably what caused him to lose his election bid the next time. And so he voted against it. He didn't get reelected. And then he basically said to all of his constituents, to heck with you, I'm moving to Texas. <laughs> and so that's when he made his last stand at the Alamo fighting against the Mexican army. But that brings up a whole new chapter of the Great Smoky Mountains human history. And a really neat part is a lot. I mean, the settlers and the homesteaders, there were a lot of great people with amazing stories that lived in the Smokies, you know, after the unfortunate removal of the Cherokee Indians. Yeah. And one of my favorite people, actually, well, it's not just a person, it's actually a family. And I think you'll like them too, is the Walker family. Mm-hmm. The sisters. Yes. You know about the sisters. Mm-hmm. They're so cool. Yeah. Okay. So if you've never heard of the Walker family, the father, John Walker, he married his wife, Margaret King, in 1866. And after marrying, they moved to an area called the Little Green Briar Cove. Mm -hmm. And today you can find it somewhere near the Metcalf Bottoms picnic area. Yeah, you can either walk up or drive up right from that picnic area to get up to the school up there. Right. And it's 
pretty amazing because like I said, it's not just a person, it's a family. They had 11 children. Nice. And what's incredible about, especially about this time period, all 11 children grew to adulthood. And so that's the fact yeah, that that's they- a, that's a pretty big deal because <laughs> usually they had that many kids because most of them didn't make it. Exactly. So they had four boys and six girls, and the boys eventually married and moved away, and so did one of the daughters. But that's only, wait, four boys, six girls is only ten. Seven girls and... <laughs> <laughs> seven girls and four boys. Really? Yes. Okay. Yes, that okay. is correct. Okay. And so, so I funny. just needed a little bit refresher on yeah. my arithmetic. Okay. I should attend the Greenbrier School. <laughs> and... So the boys all married and moved away, as did one of the girls. But all of the girls stayed and lived on the farm for basically their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And he, he died somewhere in the early 1900s. And the girls all stayed. And every single one of them, they just ran the farm. And it was incredible. And this statement from one of the girls says everything you need to know about how hardy all of these homesteaders and settlers were. Our land produces everything we need except sugar, soda, coffee, and salt. And they literally didn't need anything else. They worked the land and it provided everything that they needed. They made their own clothes. They grew their own food. They built their own structures. Everything was provided for in that area. And the father, John, he built like a cotton gin and, and so... They would shear all the sheep and they would weave their own clothing. They were so hardy. And these people, I mean, from before the park service was even an idea, they were living there. And then in 1916, that's when the park service actually came into be. And this whole process, they lived in this area during the whole revolution where the conservation movement was going throughout the whole country. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, there was a woman named Ann Davis. And she's credited for having the idea that, you know what, we need a national park in the area. And she had just been on a vacation back west and visited some national parks. And she came back to, I think she lived in Knoxville. A lot of the early supporters of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park lived in Knoxville. And so she came back and she's like, we really should have one of these back here. Why do they have all the national parks back west? And so she came home. She started making some friends, talking to a bunch of people. And all of a sudden, boom, there was a local conservation movement aimed at creating a national park somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains. Mm -hmm. And the Great Smoky Mountains was the favored place for a lot of people that lived in Knoxville. But there was a big problem. There were already people living there. So many people yeah. living there. I mean, you had the Walker family that had been living there for 50 years, basically, at this point. Into the 20s, they were there since... 1866, I think, is that what I said? And so they've been there for quite a while. And you have not just them, but there's thousands of people living in the Smokies. But also there were huge swaths of land that were owned by timber companies and paper companies. Yeah, all the trees. Yep. And so there was some major, major problems facing the people that were thinking, oh, let's just make a national park because what do you do? And the biggest problem was that the government actually decided they wouldn't supply any funds 
So the government wasn't using tax money for this. They said, oh, let's explore this, but you have to get it all donated, mm-hmm. basically. And so Ann Davis, she got a bunch of people, a group together. There was another guy, if you watch the Ken Burns uh, series, they talk about this a lot. There's a Japanese immigrant named George Masa. And he took a bunch of pictures. There was a couple of different photographers that took some really amazing, beautiful pictures that really helped move this movement forward. Because a lot of times, if you don't know what you're trying to preserve, why would you do it? They wrote a whole bunch of stories. So you got photographers like George Massa. You've got newspapermen like Charles Webb. And they're writing all of these stories in newspapers in local areas trying to drum up support for the national park idea and then finally finally the legislatures of both tennessee and north carolina they said okay fine we will appropriate two million dollars for land purchases but basically the rest of it all needs to be donated Mm -hmm. and so Acquiring lands was a huge problem for the people that were looking to do this. And luckily, I'm going to say the last name of a family that we really love, the Rockefellers. Were they here too? (laughs) (laughs) We just talked about this in Acadia, Grand Teton. The Rockefellers come in and what buy up all the land and then donate it. So, So this is what happened. So it wasn't John D. Rockefeller. It was actually... Laura Spellman Rockefeller. Okay. So the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial Fund, they said that they would match $5 million. And so they all of these boosters and all of these fundraisers that were be, being done in the local communities and things like that, they were doing, I mean, there were school children who pledged their pennies mm-hmm. to this process. And so- That's so cute. It, it's so cool. It's a literal ground roots effort of the local communities being supported by kind of like a nationwide effort. Mm -hmm. And so it's such a cool story. There's all these people, all of these different players. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the story is headed by a guy named Ben Morton. And Ben Morton was the mayor of Knoxville in the mid-1920s. And he was a pretty important advocate for the Great Smoky Mountains being created. But after he was out of office... He was actually appointed by the governor to serve on the commission, kind of to lead this effort. And it was actually him. He was really instrumental in the negotiating efforts with a company called Champion. And Champion owned 100,000 acres in the heart of the Smokies. And I think they were a paper company. Mm -hmm. And he negotiated with that company for a $3 million settlement. And once that happened, everybody was just so excited because once we were able to get a large swath of land, then this was going to happen. We have the heart of our national park right here. It was Champion's old land. Let's just get everything around it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really cool process, but oh my gosh, how much $5 million back then would be so hard to raise Mm -hmm. because we're talking in pennies can buy happy meals kind of a thing. Dollars nowadays are worth way more back then. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's an amazing effort by a lot of amazing people to finally bring about this amazing national park. But 
we've still got the Walker family living in the heart of it. Right. And so and other families in Cades Cove and Catalucci. Exactly. All these places that are now part of the national park. Exactly. We drive through to see all their houses that are falling <laughs> into disrepair. Yeah. But what what's so cool, these six sisters, and then one of them passed away. So it was five remaining sisters. And they actually called their area the Five Sisters Cove. And then people keep coming up to them. Hey, we want to buy your land. We want to start this national park. No, they keep saying no. They keep saying no over and over and over again. Finally, in 1940, President Roosevelt signs the national park into existence. And then they're basically, I don't know if they were hamstrung or if they were kind of forced to sell, but they got almost $5,000 for their land, which is about 122 acres. But I think why so many people like didn't just like go get their guns and revolt against the government is because of exactly what happened with the walkers. They were given a lifetime lease on their property. Mm -hmm. They could stay. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people stayed until they died. Exactly. And then the land went back to the uninhabited. Exactly. (laughs) And so these Walker sisters after 1940, they had lived here for so long, living off the land, hunting, cutting down trees, farming and doing all the things necessary for survival. But then once 1940 hit, it's a national park. They can't do all of that stuff. And so what they have to do is actually welcome in tons of visitors and they sell them pies and they sell them handmade things that they had done. And these five sisters, they literally lived there until their 80s. There's actually a really kind of a cute, funny story for the sisters. They actually, at one point when there was only two sisters left, Margaret and Louisa was her name. They wrote a letter to the park superintendent. Louisa? Louisa. Or Louisa. Nope, it's Louisa. Really? It's so funny. Okay. So they wrote a letter to the park superintendent saying, can we take down the visitor's welcome sign? Because <laughs> we're getting too we're old. tired. <laughs> they literally wrote down, because <laughs> we're getting too old and tired to get work done on the farm and greet visitors too. <laughs> And at the time, oh Margaret was 82 and oh Louisa was 70. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're like, please stop visiting us. We just want to live in peace. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so they literally did. They just lived in peace on their farm. Margaret died in 1962 at the age of 92. And Louisa, she stayed in the house until she died in 1964. And so honestly, a lot of the homesteaders and the settlers that lived in this area, they were like that Charlie Daniels song, Long Haired Country Boy. I ain't asking nobody for nothing if I can get it on my own. They were completely self-sufficient. They took care of everything in their life the best that they could mm-hmm. on their own. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the anthem a lot of, of a lot of these mountain people that lived in the Great Smoky Mountains. They're an amazing part of the human history, but so are all the conservationists that really wanted the mountains, the explorers and all the native peoples. This entire human history, there's some really messy parts of it, but there's some really admirable parts of it too, where you have some amazing people that carved a life out of this land for themselves and they were self-sufficient. They did everything on their own and they were proud of it, man. That's why we have some of the best music ever, bluegrass. Mm-hmm. I love bluegrass. <laughs> I love bluegrass so much. I do too. But like, man, oh man, those are some of the coolest things. I just, 
if you've not been to the Smokies, get to the Smokies. Yeah. Because it is it is such a story of just so many different people and and plants and animals and things and just like history all around you and life all around you. I mean, that to me is what makes Great Smoky Mountains National Park so special. Yeah, it's a really neat place. And it's just life giving, not only for creatures and plants, but people. And as you visit Great Smoky Mountains National Park, anybody that visits will just feel a new kind of life breathed into them. Enjoy it as you visit this awesome place, have an adventure, and you'll see something without a doubt that you'll appreciate on a higher level, hopefully just by knowing a few of these fun facts. Thanks for exploring the national parks with us. Please share, like, and subscribe. And if you need any help planning your own trip, click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes. <laughs>